Well, the thumbnail says that's a hard question. And the first question we have today is a hard question. It's about um, how do we biblically grieve the death of a loved one who wasn't saved? Now, before we jump into that, just a reminder, if it's your first time here, I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I'm just a pastor in Southern California. And I make content online helping people learn to think biblically about everything because I believe that that's going to really transform your life and it will make you into someone who will change the lives of people around you as well. And so part of that learning to think biblically about everything is the realization that while I have, you know, Mondays, I do verse by verse teaching and I also do topical videos and other other times, uh, yet I don't cover everything in those videos. And so the Q&A on Fridays, which we're doing right now, this gives me a chance to answer your guys' questions. So you're loading your questions as, as many of the regulars already are doing. We're loading your questions in the chat. We'll pick 20 of them. We'll select 20. I'm going to answer 20 today and we'll just see how it goes. I am answering off the cuff. I haven't had a chance to spend hours working on these questions. And yeah, I often like to do that. Spend hours working on questions. But the first question that I'm going to take, which I saw just a couple minutes ago, is from Megan Chan, who asks, how do we biblically grieve the death of a loved one who wasn't saved? Since we don't believe in purgatory and therefore we don't pray for deceased people, what is an appropriate but still loving response in this situation? And how can we kindly correct those who make a well-meaning offer to pray for a dead loved one without being harsh? Um, let's talk about this. So, Let's set aside the purgatory issue and, and praying for a loved one. I'll answer that too, but I'm going to start by answering this first question. Uh, what, what, you know, how do I biblically grieve the death of a loved one who wasn't saved? And here I want to say, um, it, as I try to get clarity on this issue, I think grief is good. Blame is bad. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, in the Bible, even people who, like we look at God's attitude towards the unsaved, in scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, his his attitude towards the unsaved is one of like uh, arms reaching out, desperately wanting to see them come of their own decision to come to the love of God, to come to the truth of Christ. He wants them to be forgiven. And we see this in the, in the, um, in the prophets. We see them reaching out and, and just like in Isaiah where he's like, oh, look, look how messed up your life is. I'm going to paraphrase here. He, he's like the whole head is struck. The whole body is ill. But he's like, look how messed up your life is. Would you just turn and repent? Like how bad does it have to get for you to give your life to God? You've been going against him doing your own thing. And there is at the same time as there is this threat of judgment, there is this desperation that the person would avoid judgment. And I think Christians, if we, if we have God's heart towards people, we often find ourselves in a place where we are more worried about somebody's salvation than they are. And that's kind of what the Old Testament prophets often are. They're like, I'm more afraid and fearful and concerned and grieved by your rejection of God than you are. That's pretty typical. I think that's a good thing. And I think the grief of someone who's who has died, and we know for some, some reason you have really good reason to believe that they were not a Christian. They did not give their life to Christ. They And some people, if you're not a believer, you're, you're hearing me say, they didn't have the right religion. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we all have sin. We've all failed. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Like I have this debt of sin. Imagine every crime you've ever committed. There's like a logbook for it. Well, all your moral crimes, God has all of them known. And one day you'll stand before him and you'll have to have justice for that. Well, Jesus, he took that justice on the cross. We see Jesus as the solution to the sin problem of mankind. And if you reject Jesus, if you don't have his covering, then you have to stand based on your goodness and you're not good. And I'm not good, not truly good, not, not God's version of good, right? The, the true version of good. So my attitude towards them is grief and sorrow 
And it's, it's totally appropriate to have that attitude to say, this is such a tragedy. This is such a tragedy. But oftentimes grief in those moments of grief and those moments of hardship, we often have distorted thinking at those times. Um, I've seen it over and over again. I've been there in hard moments where somebody died suddenly. Okay. I've been there. There's been a couple of times in my life where I was there at that moment where somebody suddenly died and you never forget it. You don't sleep that night, you know? And what was crazy is how fast people automatically start to just blame. They want to blame. And it's not because they're trying to be jerks or something like that. I think it's a natural human thing. So when somebody suddenly passes, whether it's a car accident or a heart attack or a suicide, the natural human thing is to immediately try to like assign whose fault it was. Now, some people assign it to themselves. This was my fault. I didn't do more to stop them. I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. Sometimes they assign blame towards others, right? This, you shouldn't have said what you, you said or, 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 or on them. They shouldn't have done what they did. In the case of a Christian, the danger is that you might assign blame to God, right? So here's someone who, who did not come to Christ and I'm grieved, rightfully grieved that they are, that they are apart from God, that they do not know him, that they've died without that, that relationship with God. I'm totally and rightly grieved by that. But to then turn and blame God, which is, I think, a natural human thing to do, but it's natural in the same sense that it's very bad. It's, it's, we have lots of natural things we do that are not good. That's where I would caution someone not to go. So grief here is, 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 a, is appropriate and proper. Blame, though, especially towards God, is, is wrong. Here, I want to say, take your grieving heart and realize that it has to be coupled with faith in God's goodness. Right? This is about God's justice, God's rightness. And here you go. I don't have to feel great about all this stuff. I just have to know that God's character is untainted by all the situations of mankind. It's so important that you know God is good. And to me, this is one of the most obvious facts of reality. G the goodness of God is unchangeable. Like God can't be something other than good. And to think that the circumstances of this person not knowing Christ reflects on Christ and not on them when I make them the victim of Christ, this is what our culture does all the time when they want to basically talk down to Christian beliefs. Um, they they want to make people the victim of Christ instead of him being our rescuer who was rejected. And that would be my counsel there. When it comes to the issue of purgatory, um, here again, when people are in great seasons of grief, when they're thinking very, very emotionally, um, it's not always the best time to try to do like theological surgery on them. And so uh, that's something I've not only have been told, but this is something I think is accurate. I think it's true. When people are, here's a, here's one way to put it. And life isn't really this way, but this helps. Think of people are on the thinking level or the feeling level. Okay. This isn't reality, but this, this is like a helpful way of looking at things. If they're on the thinking level, then you can approach them with thoughtful responses to help correct thinking. But if they're on the feeling level and they're responding in feelings, then you, you, you want to sort of communicate on that level to them. Or if you can build a bridge from one to the other, that's fine. Uh, nothing's inherently wrong with being on the feeling level, except that sometimes we say things without thinking. Now, if someone's like, um, I'm so sorry, you know, you lost so-and-so, I'll pray for them. At that moment, I'm not like, well, let's talk about that. Like, this is not the moment where I want to correct their theology. I just think it's bad timing. And so I care about it. I, I think it's an issue. I think I want to deal with it. But I'm certainly not going to pick that moment. Let's let's make an object lesson at this moment right here about this issue. I just think it's the, it's the wrong time. So I would just be like, thank you. I appreciate your sentiment. You know, and then I'd move on. Um, yeah, the more you know Christ, the more you know about the word of God, the more opportunities you have to correct everybody who gets every everything a little bit wrong or even in a big way wrong. 
So the more self-control you have to have about when that correction should come. You might see me doing this stuff online. I'm correcting people all the time, all day long. I'm just correcting, 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 or whatever, trying to give correct theology, even if I'm not addressing it towards anybody. But I don't do this in my personal relationships because I want to be patient with people the same way God is patient with me. And that would be my counsel on that. Uh, question number two is from Tony Oshikanlu, who says, what does Plato have to do with Christianity? I recently read that Plato had as much influence on Christianity as the Bible. Thanks. Um, Tony, I'm a little out of my depth on the answer to this question. So I'm only going to say a couple little things. This is what I've gleaned. And I say gleaned because I haven't looked deeply into it. Um, there are those who suggest that a lot of the stuff that we see in the New Testament, right, or, or perhaps even post-New Testament that we see developing in the church, that it comes from Greek philosophy and Greek thought. In my bit of experience in this, I think that this often comes through having a really shallow sort of understanding of what Jewish thought and Greek thought really are like. And so if this happens a lot when people are looking at ancient history, they have a really sort of caricature version. Like if you think about what the Germans were like during during World War II, you, have, you probably have a caricature version of the Germans in your head that's pretty pretty villainous. Now it's true. There was a lot of villainy going on there, but there's, a, there's also a bigger story going on there. I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying that our understanding of history is often based on these caricatures. And that can be the same way with Jewish thought, Greek thought, uh, ancient Near Eastern thought. We often have caricatures of them. So I would just say this, my short answer. Uh, what does Plato have to do with Christianity? Well, there may have been some influence there, but that doesn't mean that he is like the influencer for their thought, right? And, and, and even if he helped define some terms and define some ideas that some of the New Testament authors or, or that later Christians would have talked about, that doesn't mean that they are like his original concepts, right? Because there's, there's, a, there's a popularizer of an idea and an originator of an idea and... Anyway, I know I'm speaking rather vaguely, but that's because, again, this is an area I don't have as much experience in. So um, I'll give you one example that I know a little bit more about. Philo, for instance. Philo, he's a Jewish guy, but he was very much like a very influential thought person. And this is a guy who was alive during the time of Christ, at least during the birth, in the birth of Christ. Like Philo's alive and he's active then. And he develops this idea of the Logos. That the logos, that, and this is what John talks about in John 1, in the beginning was the logos, the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And there's some connection between John's way of using logos and Philo's way of using logos. There's some connection there. But what, what I see in John is John taking the idea and making sure it has his own meaning that might be have some similarities to Philo, right? But it has its own meaning. Like this is the, the pure version of this. And so if someone wants to say, um, try to do something weird with the connection between John and Philo, that's when I'm going to say, hold on, slow down. John isn't just copying and pasting here. There may even be some similar ideas going on, but he has his own thoughts. And if we just look at the New Testament as if they're borrowing from this other philosophy over here and don't realize they have their own thoughts, uh, then we have that caricature of them. So let them stand alone is my thought. Question number three from Adidam, Ad, Ad, I can't pronounce her name, uh, Damola. Ayaji, I'm so sorry, I butchered your name, uh, is or was Christianity guilty of impeding critical thinking and exploring the mysteries of the cosmos and physics of the natural world? How would you advise a believer involved in both worlds? Hmm, let me take a drink of my coffee as I ponder this deep, deep historical 
philosophical, scientifical thought. Okay, I've pondered it, and I'm ready. Um, I would reword it like this. I would say, was Christianity guilty? Uh, no, I, I think this is a dangerous thing to say this, and I'll explain why. In our modern culture, Christianity is is used in a way where, okay, let, let's put it this way. Open the Bible, look at Jesus, look at authentic Christianity that comes from Christ and the disciples, the apostles, the writings of the scriptures. This is authentic Christianity. This is true Christianity. Now look at our, our culture and gather 10 Christians together and look at their behavior and notice this. Their attitudes, their behavior, even maybe some of their beliefs is not the same thing as this authentic Christianity. So when we say, was Christianity guilty of something? Let's say these 10 people rob a liquor store. Could I say Christianity is guilty of robbing a liquor store? What if, but what if these 10 Christians, supposedly, they use Christian teachings, they use the Bible to try to support their robbery of the liquor store, right? We go into the land and take it, right? And, you know, this is, they marched around the liquor store for 40, 40 days before they went in and took everything, if that's what they did. Do I blame Christianity? No, because this is not authentic, biblical, true, Christ-like Christianity. And I think this is something that our culture has missed. Uh, right now, our culture is really, really um, uh, critical of Christianity, but they make no difference between any Christian they pick out that they hate versus what scripture actually says. So you have people breaking into the White House or in, into the, um, the chambers that happened not too long ago in January, and there they are. And they're praying. And I'm like, to me, someone who, who cares about authentic, true Christianity, according to following Jesus, I look at that and I go, that's not this. But many people thought that is this, like that is Christianity. So when you say, is Christianity guilty of hindering scientific progress in the past? I think no, because true Christianity doesn't hinder scientific progress. It provides a lot of the philosophical background and grounding that we need. For instance, True biblical Christianity teaches that the world runs by laws that God has set up. Why is that important? Science is based on the idea that you can do repeatable experiments because there are generally rules for how the universe works. And, it's, and it happens the same way pretty much every time. And this is why you, can, you could test and, and experiment and rely on the answers to those experiments. Christianity suggests that, a, that God... He more than suggests, right? But it says that God created all these things. That means that a highly intelligent creator designed all the universe. And so as we look and evaluate it scientifically, we can we can evaluate it as things have um, function and inter interconnectivity and these different things. This is predictable on Christianity. Now, when you go to, say, um, the time of Galileo or something like that, there's a lot of myths about it. Was was the were Christians holding back Galileo from his theories? And the answer is uh, not exactly no. You see, science of the day—that is, the people who studied natural the natural world—they were opposed to Galileo's theories. The church, right, had connected itself in some ways to those people, but that's not because of scripture. That's because it was a prevailing scientific theory. And scientific theories, once popular, are very hard to dethrone. And you can get persecuted by science, right? Because it's not, science doesn't even exist, right? Science is just whatever this group of people say science says. All that to say, um, Christianity provides the, the, the fountain spring from which science can function well. And it doesn't hinder it in that fashion. And there are countless Christian scientists and brilliant physicists and all this sorts of thing to help support this idea. Um, 
there was something else I wanted to say. On. Let me read your question one more time, make sure I answered everything I wanted to about it. You said, uh, was Christianity guilty of Im impeding critical thinking and exploring the mysteries of the cosmos and physics of the natural world? How would you advise a believer involved in both worlds? So yeah, I would, I would say we, I don't think Christianity is naturally guilty of that. Plenty of people claiming Christ could be guilty of that. But really, okay, I'll speak for myself. As a Christian, if I was also deep in science, I'd be thinking that I have I have to have integrity to be honest with the evidence I see. I have my my faith and trust in God and Christ. I don't separate the two, right? But I, I see that God is the maker of this world and I'm gonna deal with um with science in a way that is worshipful. Like I, I look at the thing I'm discovering and finding out about as something that reveals God's glory. I, I don't see the conflict here. And if you want to deal with young earth, old earth stuff and evolution stuff like that, I'm that's too much for today <laughs> and probably too much for me to deal with. It's not really my area. I would want to follow the evidence where it leads. Um, I think that my Christian worldview wants me to do that. Silas Abrahamson says, deep theological and philosophical question does God have a sense of humor? Um, and it kind of is deep and it's kind of like just interesting at the same time. So does God have a sense of humor? Um, scripture says God laughs. Like that's, I'm quoting scripture, like God laughs. And so if the Bible tells us that God laughs, then there must be something he finds humorous. So ergo, vis-a-vis, -vis, <laughs> therefore God has a sense of humor. He finds things humorous, which implies that some things are objectively funny. I think, right, because God has a sense of moral right and wrong, but that's because things are really morally right and wrong. I think some things are objectively funny. It's actually funny. And um, and that's interesting. Now, also in scripture, there's various things that imply this as well. Like when Jesus talks about the plank in your eye, uh, you know, you, you're, you're saying to your brother, I'm going to help you with a speck in your eye. This is Matthew 7, but you have a plank in your own eye. The plank is like the size of like a two by four. And he says you have this two by four sticking out of your eye. I think that was meant to be humorous. I think it was meant to be funny. Um, and it is funny. And usually pastors joke about it when they teach that passage for that very reason. There's other various things God does. He, he uses humor. Actually, God uses mockery. I know this might be a surprise to people, but he uses mockery. He talks about the idols of the nations. He goes, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. The, these wooden idols or these gold idols that they would make. And so he actually mocks and ri and ridicules them. And rightly so. Uh, it doesn't mean you have permission to mock anybody you want. We tend to do these things poorly, even if they can occasionally be done. We tend to do them wrong. God does them right. But, but yeah, so I think that there is legitimacy for humor. I think laughter is absolutely fine and good um, and healthy. Um, so yeah, humor, man. Humor. Now there are those who like... They, they treat pleasure as though it's sinful. This is not true, right? So pleasure is treated as sinful. So like uh, a husband and wife being intimate together, there's something sort of bad about that. Like there are some who have in the name of Christ, but not, a, not consistent with Christianity. They have acted like the only time a husband and wife can be together is to procreate. Like if, if you're not doing this to have a kid, you shouldn't even do it because there's just like something wrong with it. This is not, like, here's an example of Greek philosophy entering into Christianity. Here's an example of it, right? Because there were those who, there was different types of Greek philosophies, but one of them was the idea that all this stuff in the natural was wicked, and so you should abstain from it. And so you would abstain. You don't, don't eat any good food, don't laugh, don't have a good time, don't play any games. 
I don't think that's consistent with Christianity. I think the biblical view, remember we come starting from Old Testament to New, is that all these pleasures of life are given by God for us to thoroughly enjoy and just rejoice in and give him glory. Pleasure does present an open door to sin because if something tastes good, you might be tempted to eat too much of it. But you should still be able to eat it and say, thank you, God. Right? So, like, here's something I thank the Lord for right here. I'm going to show it to you guys. I'm not sponsored here, but orange Tic Tacs. Orange Tic Tacs are fantastic. <laughs> thank God for them. But if I eat that whole box in the next five minutes, perhaps... Perhaps I've gone too far with it. And so we want to have that balance of pleasure is good. Pleasure is something you should be enjoying. Go too far with it. Um, humor is like that too. Humor is good. It's something to enjoy. But humor also has a dangerous side. This is if I joke about the nature of God, if I joke about the glory of Christ, if I joke about things that ought not be joked about, that devalues those things. If, I, if I've perverted humor, these things, is this is where it turns to sin, right? But it's not sinful naturally. I think humor is inherently a wonderful thing. And it can be turned towards sin. I think that should be our attitude towards pretty much all areas of pleasure. Uh, I think that's a biblical view, right? That the carnality, wickedness, sinfulness isn't pleasure. It's pleasure out of context, pleasure in the wrong way, pleasure um, out of proportion. Uh, Stephanie Morse says, are there biblical examples of people being baptized more than once? I was baptized LDS, but don't consider it to be a legitimate baptism. I want to be rebaptized now that I've found Christ. Is it okay? Oh, I wonder if I could find this passage. There is. There's one actually, an example. Um, um, and it is in Acts. Let me find it real quick. Acts 19. So in Acts 19, let, let's read this together. And I'm, before I comment on it, let me refresh my mind because I haven't actually read the passage with your question in mind. Is this an example of being baptized more than once? Sort of. Let's let's read through the passage and let's, let's think about it. Then I'll answer your question about your own situation. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So there's already people believing while he's there in Ephesus. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So he's like, wait a minute, your disciples, your believers, you haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit? Then verse three, and he said, into what then, here, let me help you find the spot, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Okay, so there's there's more going on. This is just a, a truncated version of their of their conversation, right? So they, they know, he knows they were baptized, right? And they're believers, they're disciples, but they don't really know about the Holy Spirit. They don't seem to know that much about Jesus even. Why is this? It's probably Apollos. In the, in the book of Acts, Apollos was, if, if memory serves me here, was at Ephesus prior. And he was the guy that was preaching, but only up till the, up till the baptism of John. So he's like preaching repentance and all that, but he doesn't know about the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't know about all those things. So he's later pulled aside by a couple, a, a, a woman and a man, who help educate him in better theology. They give him the fuller message. And then Apollos is like a powerful person who, is, as far as evangelism and debate, he does debate with Jews, goes to the synagogues, and he m proves mightily, proves that Jesus is the Christ using Old Testament prophecy, which is like one of my favorite things. Okay, I think, likely, I'm putting two and two together here, Paul's running into some of Apollos' previous people either people he preached to or people he was maybe associated with. They've been baptized by John. They're expecting the Messiah, but they just don't know all the story of Jesus. This is in Ephesus, okay? They haven't heard the whole story. And so he's like, well, what were you baptized into? 
If you don't know about the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit from the beginning of the church. When you get baptized into Jesus, you know about the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, John baptized. He's differentiating between John's baptism and what he's telling them. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Okay, that much they knew they were going to believe in one who's coming after, but they didn't know, maybe didn't know it was Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that sounds like they were water baptized. That's what it sounds like to me. Because John, all the, the term baptized is being used in a water sense. What were you baptized into? We were baptized into repentance by John's baptism. Oh, well, John baptized with water into repentance. Then they heard this and they get, it seems, rebaptized Because now they've got the fuller message. They heard something that was true, but it was incomplete. And now they want the rest of the story. They seem to get water baptized again. And if that's true, if I'm right there, this may have bearing on your situation. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all, which is exciting. Uh, do you have to speak in tongues every time, you know, you get baptized or the Spirit comes upon you? No, you don't have to. The Bible doesn't say that. Don't believe people who say it says that. It doesn't say that. It just says they did it. It doesn't say everyone always has to do this. But it's neat. And it's neat because it's showing like confirmation to them that Jesus truly is the one that John was he was a forerunner for. Okay, so how does all this apply to you? I'm going to read your question again, Stephanie. Are there biblical examples of people being baptized more than once? Well, yes, that's the only one I'm aware of is that one right there um, that I think would be applicable at all. So that's one. Uh, I was baptized LDS, but don't consider it to be a legitimate baptism. I want to be rebaptized now that I found Christ. Is that okay? I would say absolutely. Like, here's this group. They don't have like false theology. They just have incomplete theology. But in the LDS church, you were actually baptized into false theology. So you're even a step further back. I think it's entirely wonderful and good and appropriate for you to then get baptized for the first time in the name of the true son of God, Jesus Christ, for, for your belief in the true gospel of Christ. I think this is a wonderful thing. I would highly recommend it. Um, please go for it, Stephanie. And I think it's the right thing to do. Loretta Taylor has a question and she asks, in Numbers 33... Verses three through four, Yahweh never denies other gods. Are we then to understand gods of other religions, Allah, Zeus, etc., as very much real gods, albeit demons? Thank you, Mike. God bless you. This, I, I have my answer and I'm going to share it with you, but this is an issue that is um, uh, debated. <laughs> but let me offer you um, three views. One which is absolutely false, one which is one I don't agree with, but which is is supported by a growing number of people right now, especially with the work of Dr. Michael Heiser, and then um, my own perspective on that, which does have some similarities, right? There's some things obviously I'm going to agree with with Dr. Heiser, but um, I'm not on board. So here we are. Let's look at the passage and we'll talk about it. Oh, and if you guys see the strawberries in the live chat, that means we have all 20 questions selected. I've got all 20 in front of me. I'm just working through them now. So, I mean, you could keep, if you keep posting questions, we're not going to reprimand you for it, but there's no need. Um, I won't be able to do more than the 20. So, Numbers 33.3, it says, They set out from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after pass the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods... Also, the Lord executed judgments. So this is the theme in Exodus. Uh, the Exodus is all these plagues that come upon Egypt. And it specifically says in scripture as commentary on 
on the plagues themselves, one of the functions of the plagues is God executing judgment on the gods, the gods of the Egyptians. And so if you look at the plagues, like the Nile River, they worship the Nile River and it represented a deity to them and he turns it to blood. They worship the, the livestock and he kills the livestock. They worship the firstborn of Pharaoh as a god and he slays the firstborn. So all of the different plagues were like attacking specific deities that they believed in. Excuse me. Now, oh man, this, this deserves a, a very long and exhaustive video response, but here's my short answer. The one wrong view, the view you cannot hold as a Christian, is that there is... And for instance, Osiris, there is a Zeus, there is these other gods, they actually exist as beings that have the attributes of Osiris or Zeus or you name it. That is the, that is the one view no Christian can have, no biblical believer, no Bible believer should have that view. Zeus with the attributes of Zeus does not exist. Now, there are two other views. I said I mentioned three. There's two other views. I'll get my view and then I'll, I'll share Michael Heiser's view or maybe I'll do it Michael Heiser's first. And forgive me if I get this wrong. Uh, this is my best understanding of it. And you can read it. He has tons of free resources online. You can check him out. Um, I, although I'm not on board with his perspective on this. But if I understand him right, the perspective is that there are these things that are Elohim. They're not exactly angels. They're not exactly demons. They are, they're like, they're like, gods with the lowercase g his view is that these elohim the these things are not they're not different like here's yahweh here's here's god the god of the bible right the god created all things he's not like them they're ontologically completely different beings okay so they're not it's not like god and then he has these other equals rather god has created various spiritual beings of different powers now when they claim to be gods this is in that context lowercase g these just sort of powerful spiritual beings the ones that might be impersonating Thor or Osiris, they're not really like Thor and Osiris, but they do exist, these beings. Now, my view is to categorize these much more like in a flat sense. Uh, when Paul writes about them and suggests that there aren't, they don't exist, but they're actually just demons. Um, I wonder if I could find the passage real quick. This, like I said, deserves a lot more... Um, a lot more discussion than I'm going to be able to give you today. But here's the passage in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, let all back up just a bit. Consider the people of Israel, um, the, the verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I'm implying or I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. And that's a pretty flat way to look at it. Like, oh, well, what's behind the idols is demons. There's a demonic spirit that's behind these false religions, different demonic spirits behind different ones. And so behind Dagon, behind Baal, there's these spiritual beings that are trying to reinforce and push forward these false religions. They want to receive the worship to themselves. They want to be like God themselves. So they're called gods, but that's what they're called because that's what the people are calling them. But if you pull back the spiritual curtain, they're just demons. That would be, um, man, I, I really should do a long thing on this one of these days. Because I feel like I'm just, sometimes when you summarize things, you, you just know that you, you haven't given it the three-dimensional treatment it deserves. Um, so yeah, Thor and Zeus and all that, no, they don't exist. Not on a Christian worldview. Um, some spiritual being behind them probably does. The question is, what exactly is the nature of that being? What's the right term for them? But in no way does any Christian, rightful Christian, think that any of those beings is like Yahweh. Like the 
ontologically God is ultimate. He's he's eternal. He's he's God. Capital G is the easy way to put it. Uh, number seven, Earl Gray says, "Ask after forgiveness, all sin is wiped clean. Can a person then claim to have never taken part in certain sin in the past? If the Lord remembers our sin no more, why should we?" Okay, great question, Earl Gray. I'm excited to have you ask this. So I went to a um, a church, a very big church locally one time, and uh, much larger than my church, and much much larger. And the sermon there was by like a guest pastor, a guest teacher. And he taught that we can actually forget sin because if God forgets our sin, then we can forget the sin of others. And he literally taught that you guys, you and me, we can actually not remember the sins. So if you have a spouse that committed adultery, you're like, they did? I don't remember that. And I thought this was a reckless, irresponsible, and harmful message. That is not what the scripture means when it says that God doesn't remember our sins. What it means is, a better way to say it in modern English is he won't put it in your face. He won't bring it to remembrance again. So for instance, in scripture, when it says, and God, you know, the people of Israel were crying out and then God remembered the people of Israel or in prayers and Psalms where it's like, remember us, Lord. They don't actually mean that he's forgotten them. This is their way of saying, you're going to, you know, deal with me now. Turn, in, turn to me now. Help me now. And so when we say God won't remember, remember our sins, he remembers them no more. The idea, they're forgotten. The idea is that he won't bring it up again. It's never going to come up again. He's never going to throw it back in your face. He's not going to punish you and judge you for the thing you did. That's what's meant by not remembered. In that sense, we want to extend forgiveness the way Christ has forgiven us. But I can't like actually forget the stuff people have done to me, right? I mean... If you actually start forgetting all the things people have ever done to you in your life, there's probably a, a problem in your brain <laughs> that you don't remember this stuff. That's actually what's going on there. So that is, I think, obvious when you read the scripture and you know that God knows everything. And this guy was this guy's message was based on the idea that God literally, he literally doesn't know. He's literally, I don't, I don't know. You you committed sin. I don't, I don't even remember. And if you forget your own sin, how are you? How thankful are you to God in heaven? God, thank you so much for saving me. I mean, I guess, I don't remember whatever you saved me from. All I remember is being good, you know. That would uh, that would decrease our love and appreciation of God. Yeah. So all, after forgiveness, all sin is wiped clean. Um, that might be a, a broad way to say that. I mean, my, my sin is not held against me in, in, positionally in my relationship with God. But yet I still suffer sometimes the the pain of sin and the regret of sin. And sometimes that's a healthy thing. That's a, that's a good thing. Can a person claim to have never taken part in certain sins in the past? No, that's ridiculous. First uh, John says, if we say we have not sinned, we're, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. If, if I go around telling people, well, I'm forgiven, therefore I never did that. That's not true. Or if they go um, some version of I'm not responsible for what I've done in the past. And they're trying to have a relationship with other people like that. I think that that is a manipulative thing and it's not biblical. So there's my honest answer on that. That sounds like a very dangerous perspective to start to teach. Uh, John Doe has a question. The church I grew up at had extra biblical traditions. Uh, women wear dresses. Men are clean shaven. Uh-oh. And justify this with Proverbs 22, 28 and Matthew 18, 18. Is it biblical to mandate adherence to tradition? Let's look at those passages. I'm very interested to see how these passages might be used in that way. Ah, here we go. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Okay. First thing we'll notice about Proverbs 20, 28 is it's 
a proverb. Proverbs aren't rules. They're often things like, it's wisdom. I mean, it's wisdom literature. So the idea of Proverbs, and this is important, is that this is just wisdom. Probably the best example of this, of why Proverbs aren't rules, is when it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Some people think this means that if I raise my kid as a Christian, then they can't fall away. They can't reject the gospel of Christ. Or, or if they do, they'll have to come back because this proverb says they will. What I would say is the proverb means it's more likely that they will turn to Christ. It's more likely that they will do the right thing because you've instilled these good things in them from a young age. But it's not a rule about life that you have to do this all the time because that's not the nature of the genre of wisdom literature. These are proverbs. Proverbs are riddles. They're sayings of the wise. Um, a saying of the wise is don't move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. What's an ancient landmark in their context? We're talking about property lines. That's what we're talking about. We're saying like the tribe of, of Joseph is here, right? Or, or say Ephraim and Manasseh are here. Gad is over here. Dan is over here. When they entered the land, they set the markers for the different places in which God gave them. He divided the land, right? We read the book of Joshua, um, Judges. We, we, we see them dividing the land, particularly in Joshua, right? This is the landmark you don't move. Why? Because God has given you this and you don't move it. It's not to say, Whatever your grandpa said, you have to say the same thing. That's not what it's saying. I think that would be a misunderstanding. Um, so Proverbs 20, 28 is just, too, in other words, my conclusion is that's too little information to say when my pastor says I, I, I have to wear a dress, therefore I have to wear a dress. Proverbs tells me I have to not, I can't move the ancient landmark. Um, no. <laughs> um, Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, what? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. This verse is probably about exorcism, to be honest. Um, it's possibly about forgiveness of sin. And it's specifically the disciples. If it is, it's about the disciples being given authority to declare the gospel to people, right? They're, they're, they're being given a powerful thing. This, this, this ability to say to people, if you trust in Christ, you'll be forgiven. If you reject Christ, you will not. This is, this is possibly what they're saying. It also, there's uh, um, intertestamental literature that suggests that maybe, may, and, and this is something I've only listened to a paper being read on this. So, um, so I'm going off that. My current thought is the other possibility is that this means uh, exorcism. Binding and loosing is our terms related to exorcism. And this is him reminding the disciples, you will be able to go into the, territory of the enemy and cast him out because the gospel is going to be that powerful. You know what it doesn't mean for sure? It doesn't mean that your pastors can tell you what to wear. And if they've bound you to wear dresses, you have to wear dresses. This, if this is honestly like you're in a church that uses those two verses to say that they can tell you what clothes to wear. Um, I'm not saying you have to leave your fellowship, but it's definitely you don't want to be under the authority of people who abuse the scripture like this to control other people's lives. That's weird. And I would, um, I would not want to propagate that kind of thing. I don't think it's going to ruin your Christian walk if you fall into that leadership and you do everything they say, but it's definitely not biblical. This is, you know, so your, your final question, John Doe was, is it biblical to mandate adherence to tradition? No. No, it's not. And and this is the very nature of, of we get the ministry of Jesus where he's like so hard on them teaching as commands of God, the traditions of man. This is a really significant issue. I worry at what about a church like this. I worry what other things do they teach as if they're the commands of God that are really 
the teachings of man. You can't mandate tradition. Like in this sense, when we say tradition versus the the teaching of God's word, um, maybe a better term because the word tradition sometimes, uh, Paul uses the word tradition is sometimes referred to God's word. It's the spoken or written word of God. And so that word tradition is flexible in the scripture. Let me put it in a different way. Man-made rules being taught as if they're God-given rules is a very big problem that Jesus is very much opposed to and Christians have to be opposed to as well. Man-made rules taught as God-made rules is a very, very big problem. And we should be pushing back against that graciously, but confidently pushing back. Uh, let's see here. Dora Ashby says, I've been trying to reach skeptics online. Dora, that is rough work, but it's good work. But they've told me belief in God is irrational and that I must believe rape and torture are okay since I'm a Christian. Because that's what we teach, right, Dora? <laughs> that's it. That's what, all day. That's all I teach is, guys, I just want you to know, rape and torture. Totally cool. That's Christianity. No, this is, you know what? But I'm going to read, you have more of your question. I'll read it in a second. But I want to say this while I'm thinking about it. Dora, just like the church quoted Proverbs 22 and Matthew 18 in the, in the last question, just like they, they quoted those out of context to support their man-made traditions, atheists and skeptics online have, have a sort of groupthink thing going on where they tend to quote scripture out of context, distort things in order to support the ugliest version of Christianity they can come up with because if they can make Christianity ugly, it helps their case. I care about true Christianity. I don't think they do. Not the ones I, I deal with online. Usually, generally speaking, there's very little concern for authentic Christianity being dealt with. It's more, how can I weaponize this verse against Christians? And things are taken so out of context. It's embarrassingly bad. Your regular conversation with skeptics online starts with them making a claim and you responding, that's not what we believe. And then you repeat that <laughs> as you go. Now, you want to be gracious and slow and patient and, and thoughtful towards them because you want to reach them with the gospel of Christ. But you are generally trying to tell people it's not what you believe. I remember the skeptic I ran into that told me the Bible taught we should be cannibals. And I was like, oh, you know, try not to be a scoffer towards the guy. I'm just like... Can you show me the verse? And we went through verses for like an hour and a half, verse after verse after verse. And every verse, I, sh I just read the context and showed him. That's not what it says. And then um, he, he didn't care. All he wanted was weaponized verses to use against Christians. Uh, here we go. You say, they also say God, they also call God evil. I'm quoting uh, Dora here. A murderer and a megalomaniac and say Christians are wasting their time believing in fairy tales. How should I respond to these claims? How can I tell when a debate is not going to even be fruitful? That's a tough one. Experience will tell you that. Like, honestly, Dora, you, you, you'll just go for it and then reflect back and say, was that worthwhile? Uh, one of the things I ask myself with online debates is, is there an audience? If there's an audience, even if I can't get through to the person I'm typing with and talking to the audience there's people looky-looing or is that a, can i use that as a verb <laughs> like looky-looing now i'm not even sure but they're rubbernecking <laughs> what's the term here they they're watching the conversation right they're like just reading it reading it reading it and i've seen this many times where i have like a debate you know back even when my content was had less reach i have a discussion with somebody a skeptic on facebook or on on social media or something and then i'd have people come up a few days later and go hey i read that whole conversation i thought it was really good so if there's an audience it may be worth drawing out the debate for the sake of the audience now if you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation you have to ask yourself am i reaching this person and if you're thinking that this is not helping then it's fine to move on 
May God give you wisdom. You learn over time. One thing I would say is, here's, here's I'm going to guess, Dora. Last piece of advice for you. They say God's irrational. You must believe in rape, torture, that they're okay, that God's evil, murder, and megalomaniac. Christians are wasting their time believing in fairy tales. This sounds like what I call dumping, right? I have a video where I, I two videos where I deal with Aaron Ra, who does this a lot. He's just, just dumping, just dumping. When they give out 500 objections to Christianity and they don't want to look closely at any of them, that's oftentimes an unfruitful conversation. So I like to just pick one. I'll say, okay, you said 10 things you hate about God or Christianity or, or my beliefs. That's fine. Let's just pick one. And sometimes I'll even let them pick. I'll say, what do you think is your, your biggest reason, your biggest issue? I'll say, what's what's your biggest beef with Christianity? What is it? And then I want to just pick the one issue and talk about that and, and have a longer conversation about it because I want to really push on that a little bit and get them to think about it. But if I can't get them to stay focused enough to have a conversation about one issue, if instead, if the conversation goes like this, um, God believes in torture. Okay, well, here's the reason why that's not torture. God said rape's okay. Okay, that's completely wrong with scripture. Like you, you rape someone, you get the death penalty. Um, okay, I'm just changing the subject. God's a megalomaniac. Okay, but you have to understand the nature of God in the universe. It's like the dad's not a megalomaniac because he decides whether the kid can use the car or not. He's just the dad, right? And God's the God of the universe. Okay, well, fine. Skip that one. The Bible's full of fairy tales. Actually, there's a lot of historical support for scripture. And then, and they just keep changing the, the the conversation. If they don't care about the answers and they only care about the questions then maybe it's time to move on. All right, R. Fish has a question. And um, I fully admit I'm moving moving slow here, but I don't think you guys care. So, <laughs> R. Fish says, is it biblical to pray against spirits? The spirit of offense, the spirit of laziness, the spirit of depression, confusion. What is a Jezebel spirit and is it real? Um, okay, is it biblical to pray against spirits? In general, yes. However, does the Bible support the idea that there is a spirit of offense, a spirit of laziness, a spirit of depression or confusion? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think these are, I'm going to, I'm going to start fires right now. I think these are ways that people avoid responsibility for their own issues. I'm not lazy. I have the spirit of laziness. I have to pray for me to overcome my, la we are really tempted and I am too. Look, I'm really tempted to externalize my own issues, right? It's not me choosing to do this over and over and over again. It's like, it's almost like it's some other version of me. This other guy over here keeps doing this. I don't know why I do that. And um, and that's a, a human thing. And when we spiritualize that, like, I'm not lazy. It's the spirit of laziness. We're like, no, maybe you're just lazy. Maybe there's no spirit. It's you. Scripture says that when we're tempted, it's because we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. So laziness, de um, depression, that could... I'm going to set depression on a different issue. Um, offense. Okay, offense, being personally offended by things. I don't think that's a spirit that's making you that way. Um, I think that laziness, I think lust, I think um, cruelty, malice, bitterness, all of those things. Paul, when he writes about this stuff, he says, put that stuff off. Put off all wrath, malice, bitterness, clamor, dissension. He just tells you to put it off. He never says it's a spirit that you have to cast out. He tells you to put it off. That should be my attitude towards sin. There are spirits. They're actually spirits. Spirits aren't like, um, like lust isn't a spirit that goes around and lands on people, right? No, that's, lust comes from you. That's you. Put it off. That would be my attitude towards those things. Um, confusion, depression. Those are issues that I would say, like, I could see how like a spirit could cause somebody confusion. I could see how 
Um, see, I see because confusion and depression are not sins, whereas laziness, lust, carnal things, those are actually sinful. Depression and confusion are not sinful. I consider those more like struggles and, and trials. You're going through a trial. Don't sin while you're in it, but you're not sinning just by experiencing it. Okay, so that's why I want to separate those two. Um, finally, you said, what's a Jezebel spirit? And my answer is, I don't know that there is such a thing as a Jezebel spirit. Um, I mean, where is that in, in scripture exactly? I mean, let me just double check something real quick because as far as I know, the whole Jezebel thing is pretty um, sparse in scripture. Okay, so we read historically about Jezebel in the Old Testament. And I just did a quick search. So in 1 Kings, we read about her a little bit in 2 Kings as it's talking about the same person as well. Okay, it's all just historical. She's just a person in the past. Then we have Revelation 2.20. This is the only other time in the Bible that the word Jezebel comes up. And let me read it to you now. Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Um, Jezebel may have been the woman's actual name. Um, it seems likely to me that this is a, a, a slight. Uh, God is, Jesus is name calling this woman. She's like Jezebel. Jezebel was was the wife of Ahab. She was a wicked woman, queen of Israel, and she brought in idolatry and false prophets, and she helped push all of Israel towards apostasy. And so he's like, this woman is doing this in the church. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray. They commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So they're doing horrible, wicked things, and it's happening in the church, and they tolerate her. It doesn't mean they support her even. They just allow her to be there. Like, she's got to get her out. Um, so... Jesus says, does, does this then give us warrant to have a term, spirit of Jezebel? No, no. And there's some churches where it's like, that's the spirit of Jezebel. That's the spirit of Jezebel. Now we're, we're sort of implying there's actually like a disembodied being who's going around and is causing things. And you're seeing the 3D spirit world and you're like, that's the spirit of Jezebel. This to me, like I'd rather speak in language of right and wrong. Okay. What you're doing is wrong. Jesus doesn't even call her spirit of Jezebel. He, he, she may be like Jezebel. He calls her Jezebel. Maybe her name is Jezebel. I don't, too, I don't imagine too many Jews were naming their daughters Jezebel at the time. But, um, but anyway, the, uh, yeah, the facts of it, like, hey, you're leading people astray. They're committing acts of immorality. You're eating things sacrificed to idols. If you want to call someone a Jezebel, then they've got to be doing those things. It can't be a woman who disagrees with you. Or maybe they're a contentious woman. And they like to argue and debate. They have a spirit of Jezebel. No, that's just... Um, that strikes me as uh, just spiritual bullying of people. And I would never do that. And if, if that's been done to you, if you're out there, it's always a woman because it's Jezebel, right? So if you're out there and you're a lady who's like, maybe I am a little strong-willed about things. Maybe I have strong opinions. I don't agree with everybody all the time. But you don't deserve to be called a spirit of Jezebel. <laughs> that is that is disgusting um, and and not right. All right, the next one is... Uh, Lovisa Bengston, Bengtson, I think. Uh, so Lovisa says, did Mary remain a virgin? I heard that the brothers of Jesus that are mentioned were actually his cousins and that if she had other sons, John wouldn't have needed to care for her. All right, let's dig in. I actually have a video on this topic. Okay. Did Jesus really have other brothers? And I, I'd ask if any of the mods can find that and share a link there. I'll put a link in the video description below for you guys to check out if you want after this, this stream is over. 
I go into a lot of detail on that, right? Like I actually read Catholic apologists trying to defend the idea. This is a pretty big deal because um, it's clear in scripture that Mary was not a virgin forever, that Mary had other children with Joseph. That's very, very clear in scripture. However, that is completely against the authoritative claims of Roman Catholicism that Mary remained a virgin. And it goes against a lot of people's um, love of Mary, right? They love Mary. And I don't mind that you love Mary. I love Mary. I think Mary is great. Like if Protestants respond to Catholic exaltation of Mary by thinking that we have to like bring her down, so to speak. No, we just have to remind them that she's, she's wonderful, but she was never exalted like that. So <clears throat> did Mary remain a virgin? No. Um, she had other kids. The brothers of Jesus, the sisters of Jesus. I go through this in great detail in the video. I've got to refer you to it. Like great detail. We actually go through the specific reasons why. Yeah. It's only Roman Catholic people who would suggest, as far as even scholars, who suggest that Mary didn't have any other kids with Joseph. This is being driven by their traditions, not by reading scripture and letting the Bible speak. It's just not the reality. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with her having other kids. There's nothing wrong with that, right? They, there's many who think that Mary was violated or she was somehow impure if she slept with Joseph. Mar the marriage bed's undefiled, guys. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing impure. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So um, you've heard the brothers of Jesus that are mentioned were actually his cousins. Uh, no, there doesn't seem to be any reason to think that. And you can actually look at Luke in particular. When Luke uses the terms, he, he uses the term cousin, right? He uses brothers and sisters. He uses these different terms and he uses them in very technical ways. Luke is a very careful writer. So I look at the Greek in that video I'm mentioning and we see that she, she, had, she had other sons and daughters, sons and daughters. Um, now, finally, there's the argument in John 19, 26, like... If Jesus had other brothers and sisters, then John 19, 26 doesn't make any sense. So let's read the passage and let's talk through this a bit. When Jesus then saw his mother, now he's on the cross at this point, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his woman, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, what is going on here? Um, how, let me tell you how a Catholic would read it typically. I, I hope I'm getting this right. Like I often am, am accused of misrepresenting. Whoever I disagree with, I'm always accused of misrepresenting them. I think I'm understanding correctly and I'm trying to be gracious and careful here. I think a Catholic view would be typically uh, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this represents, this disciple John represents all of us. And he says to this woman, behold your, your son. She's, he's telling Mary, she's the mother of the whole church. She's everyone's mom. And he, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, He's saying to all disciples, everybody, she's the mother for all of us. And then from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. I don't know what the application of that would be. I think that this actually helps us see. This is not um, some vaguely symbolic thing. I think that you can, you could, you guys can tell, right? You study the Bible, you read it carefully. All that stuff I just added, I just made up. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he left standing nearby, he said to his mother, when we behold your son, where does it say that this is extended beyond? Where do, where do we see in the Bible, in the book of Acts, where they call her mother, where everybody starts calling her mother, where she's taking a leadership role in the church? We don't see any of these things. Then he said to his disciple, behold, your mother, this is just John. He just wants John to take care of her. And then the proof is in the application, which is what I've highlighted on your screen. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus was the oldest son, for sure. He 
tells John, take care of my mom. He's dying. And he's like, John, take care of my mom. That's what this is. Take care of my mom. Probably Joseph had already passed away at this point in time. This is one of the reasons why we would think he probably had. Now, the only pushback, now, that's consistent with the passage. It's what Jesus said, taking it literally. It's what John did, took her into his own household. Now, the question is, why would John do this if there were other brothers and sisters? Why wouldn't they take care of her? Well, let me offer several possible answers. One, they're jerks. He doesn't trust them. That's possible. He doesn't trust them. They're not, they're not trustworthy to take care of her. There's something wrong with them. That's possible. I don't know if you've had a family before, but family dynamics can involve a lot of weird things. Um, another possibility is they financially couldn't take care of her. And maybe John could. Maybe John was able to for whatever reason. He, he had a situation where he could take care of her. Maybe Jesus knew that she wasn't going to leave um, that particular area and she was going to end up living in the particular area where John needed her for some reason. Or maybe there's something else too. According to you know, the only resources we've got for, for church history on these topics, all of the other followers of Jesus, including the brothers of Jesus, James and John, uh, yeah, the brothers of Jesus, including those guys, James and Jude, Jude, yeah, that's right. Um, they all died at a younger age from persecution and suffering for the name of Christ. But John the Apostle is the only one of the 12 that we have at least some information to think lived to an old age. He lived and lived and lived. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus, having insight into the future, grabs the one guy who will be around for years and years to come to make sure that his mom is taken care of. And he says, take care of her. I think that at least makes sense. It, it, it Maybe we just don't know why he asked John to do it. That's fine. I don't think you can get from this that Jesus uh, didn't have any brothers. And that's what we should get from this. That That's not supported by scripture. And again, I'll put the link for that video down below. And hopefully it's there somewhere in the chat. Yeah, this is a weak point in Catholic, Roman Catholic theology. Some of the stuff is uh, uh, a lot easier to support with scripture. Some of it's a lot harder. This is one of the very difficult ones in my opinion. And all the attempts to support it just fall short and they fall short because it's not biblical. It's tradition. Um, number 12, Crystalline Sloan says, Pastor Mike, thank you for your ministry. You're very, very welcome, Crystalline. I'm very glad uh, that you get to do it. Can you please define persecution and speak to whether these pastors imprisoned or penalized for defying public health orders are in fact being persecuted? Uh, Crystalline, I don't know that I have the insight for you guys on this one. Um, I'm struggling with the same questions as you. Um, are, are our governments overstepping, overreacting, or are they reacting properly to the COVID stuff? I don't actually have the wisdom to know the right answer to that question. Um, when a, so when a pastor says, I feel like convicted, I feel like I'm honoring the Lord, I'm doing the right thing. I think I'm doing the right thing to the best of my knowledge. And they open their doors, even, even though they're told not to. And I look at it and I go, I don't know if that's the right call to make or not. I'm just not sure. Okay, I just, I'm sorry. And, and there's plenty of you who are very confident and you're probably upset with me for not being sure because you want me to echo your confidence about your answer. I'm sorry, look, my answer, my, my point here is don't look at me for the answer on this question because I myself wish I understood it better. Just don't know. It's super tough for me right now. Um, if I had to guess, I would I would lean towards the idea that the, that the churches staying open is a good thing and they're doing the right thing. Okay, but also the recklessness with which some of them have decided to do these things, I think is hurtful for the cause of Christ. And I think that um, 
if you were to stay open, you should at least stay open with as many protections in place as possible. But again, I feel like I shouldn't be speaking so much about this. Like I'm talking too much. <laughs> um, so let me say this. Um, what I see is a pastor who keeps his doors open because he feels like he has to, to honor God. And I see the government throwing him in prison or jail for that. And that does, at least it feels like persecution. Even if the guy shouldn't open his doors, does that mean he should be punished with prison because he did? Or do we give people enough freedom of conscience to honor God in a way that they feel is right? Um, and and I, I would lean towards thinking that that is a persecution. But I, oh man, I, I feel like you guys should look to someone else who understands this better than me. So I apologize that I can't be of greater help. Rohan John says, what are your thoughts on using secular music as a form of worship music where half the lyrics are secular words and the other half is supposedly Jesus words? I think it's a little strange, but I wouldn't say that it's evil or wrong. Um, uh, we used to have a guy at our church who would rewrite secular worship songs or music music all the time to turn them into Christian songs. Uh, sometimes worship songs, sometimes other things. There's one song that gets rewritten a lot in Christian circles, and that is the song Hallelujah, um, where it's actually a really perverted song if you read all the lyrics. Um, I heard there was a secret chord that David played that pleased the Lord. Oh, it sounds Christian, right? And it has the chorus, hallelujah, hallelujah. As you listen on, the song becomes sexually perverse. It's it's just exactly the kind of thing Satan likes to do. And um, and so some have actually taken the, because they love the melody, the melody is beautiful. And just singing hallelujah is beautiful. And so they just rework the words and then they can worship to it. Initially, I would I struggled hearing that, being able to join in and worship. Um, over time, I realized I, it didn't bother me anymore for whatever reason. Um, so I was able to. But I also recognize others might be going through that struggle. So if you're going to take secular songs and rewrite them and use them in church, you're placing them in front of a large group of people, some of whom are going to have a hard time with this. And we should at least be gracious to those people and say, look, I'm not going to be like, you're sticks in the mud, you're a bunch of legalists. Like, no, no, no. I, I want to create worship that is as helpful to as many people as possible when they gather together to worship the Lord. So I don't want to be making worship, the time of worship into a controversial time unnecessarily. It should be a time of just expressing praise and glory to God. So my, my answer there is I don't think it's wrong, but there's an answer of the question of wisdom about doing it in your local fellowship. Is my fellowship able to enjoy this and be blessed by this and worship through it? Or am I creating problems? where worship becomes an area, to, a time to debate about instead of a time to praise. Shauna Whitting has a question. Does 1 John 3 verses 4 through 10 mean you aren't a real Christian if you still struggle with sin? At face value, it's how it sounds, but then nobody would qualify for grace, so I'm confused. Um, yeah, we wouldn't qualify. Okay, let's look at the passage. This is a very commonly asked question or passage people ask about. I've been asked about it a many a time. I'll share some thoughts, and I hope you find it calming and peaceful and, and uh, grace-inducing, I hope so. Um, my first rule is this. Scripture is king here. I am looking to understand what it says, not force it to say what I want. So, here, let me read it in the New King James. First, here's the New King James. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested away, manifested Jesus to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. If I abide in Christ, and you have to abide in Christ to be saved, right? If I abide in Christ, I do not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. This would mean, 
uh, now if you take it with this translation the way it sounds, if you sin, you've not only are you not saved, you've never been saved. This would imply, if you want to go the sinless perfection route, this would imply that Christians either live sinless lives or they were never Christians. That's not what it's teaching, but I can understand how it feels that way, especially with this translation. Uh, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And um, did you have another verse you mentioned there? All the way to verse 10. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. If you've been born of God, you don't sin and you can't sin because he's been born of God. In this the children of the of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, this is how you know who's Christian, who's not. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Okay. Very strong words. Now let me offer you a couple theories. And I'm going to share it with you in the uh, New American Standard or ESV. I don't know which whichever. We'll look at a couple translations here. Um, so some theories. One, sinless perfectionism. When you get saved, you quit sinning or else you're not even a Christian. Now most people don't actually go that route. E even the sinless perfection people, they think you get saved and then you grow in sinlessness until you kind of reach a point of not sinning anymore. I don't think that point is real. I think that point is what we call heaven. <laughs> it's what we call the, the, you know, when I am raised in an incorruptible body and then then I no longer sin. There's my sinless perfectionism. So it does exist. It's just, it just depends on getting delivered from this flesh finally. Um, so that's one route to go. Um, others would, would actually say, oh yeah, well, we don't sin in the sense that it's not me doing the sin, it's my flesh. And so they actually, this verse kind of ends up having no application in life because they go, okay, when it says we don't sin, that's because that's my new nature. My new nature is not sinning. That's my flesh doing the sin. And this sort of separates almost like you're two people. Um, and we're not two persons. I'm one person. And, but it's, it's as though you're two people. And one of them is the sinful person you called the old self. I think that would be a distortion of what Paul means when he talks about the, put off the old man. At any rate, um, taking it too far, but th that's the old man sinning. I'm not actually sinning. So there we, there we go. Like my life might look sinful, but that's the old person. I am not sinning because whoever's born of God doesn't sin. That's another approach. I don't think that really fits with the scripture here. Um, like for instance, he says, here's how you can tell who's a Christian and who's not right in, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, if, if the, if it's a positional thing, if it's the idea of it's my righteous person that's doing good, it's my old man that's doing bad or my old woman, then, then how does anyone know? How does anyone tell that the children of God are being manifest? There's nothing to manifest. You look the same as the world. So here's my understanding of this passage. And let's take it back to first John two. The interpretation that I think we have to rule out, I already kind of ruled out the second one, but the first one is the idea that we ne we don't sin anymore, right? But look at what the same book, this is the same context, same author. Okay, he's not going to contradict himself three minutes later. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Wait, so Christians don't automatically not sin? He's writing you this letter as a way of helping you learn to not sin? Then he says, if anyone sins, if anyone sins, and now, if, if you take the um, the really strict, sinless perfection view of the 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, then you don't think Christians sin. So the way you'd finish this sentence would be, if anyone sins, he's not a Christian. He's not saved. He's not born again. But instead, John writes, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Ah, 
children, Christians, I don't want you to sin. But if you, Christian, if you sin, we have an advocate, Jesus. He's the one who stands on our behalf. He makes propitiation for our sin. And he is the propitiation. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Which is uh, why limited atonement is false. And... (laughs) little quick swipe and then um let's go back and say okay well how do i reconcile first john 2 that says clearly that christians can sin and that jesus covers us if we do how do i reconcile that with the idea that believers don't sin and i think we go back to first john 3 and um we look at the context Or really, the Greek. Although you don't have to know Greek to look at the Greek. You know, there's a way to look at the Greek without looking at the Greek. And that's by just looking at other translations. And so here, New American Standard Bible, it says, instead of, like the New King James, whoever commits sin, it says, everyone who practices sin. That's different, isn't it? That practicing sin is not the same as committing. Because if you do one thing, it's it's a sin. But is it a practice? So how I understand First John 3 is it's talking about the person who's living in habitual sinful lifestyle. They're not living a life that demonstrates they're, they're a Christian. They're living a life that demonstrates they're just living in sin. Habitual sinful lifestyle. doesn't mean that, they, oh, Christians don't have sins they struggle with regularly. That's not what I'm saying. But there's an extreme. There's definitely a person who names Christ but who just lives like the world. And First John is suggesting that you, you cannot say that person is saved. You can't have confidence in that. I know this scares people, but I think it's what Scripture is teaching. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This has to do with the Greek tense. The Greek tense of the verb is the idea that it's an ongoing action. It's ongoing action. And so 1 John 2, if you sin, we have an advocate. But what if you're just, you live, sin is your life. You just live an ungodly, wicked lifestyle and you and you say you're a Christian. Well, he's like, oh, well, then you're, then you're not a Christian. Make sure no one deceives you. Here we have in verse 7. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Because if you are born again, then then the life of God is in you and you naturally live out a godly life. Perfectly godly? No. Children, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But there is a change. There is a difference. The way to apply this into our lives, and you can see this consistently. NASB is probably a good translation for it. You can see the it constantly uses the word practice sin. The one who's born of God doesn't practice, live the lifestyle of sin. Right? He cannot sin, not that he never sins, but he, he doesn't live that lifestyle of sin. That's my understanding of 1 John. Could I be incorrect? Um, it's possible. I think it's consistent though. 1 John 3, 8, here's the ESV. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I guess the ESV makes it even more clear. They make a practice. Whoever does not practice righteousness down there in verse 10 is not of God. Okay, so it's a lifestyle. It's not just an action of sin. Um, I think this means that you can look at your life and you can say, I claim to be a Christian. Does it look like I'm a Christian in my life? And if your answer is no, I completely look unsaved. Then you have to really wonder if you've made that true profession in Christ. Um, And the answer then is to get right with God, not to give up. I guess I'm I'm lost. I'm like, well, apparently you don't know theology very well. The answer here is to get your life right with Jesus Christ. If you've been living this backslidden, like you're in a place where you're like, I don't even know if I'm Christian or not because the way I'm living. The only answer is repent and start following Jesus in your life. That's the only solution to this. So I hope you find that helpful. Let's go to our next question. I should move a little quicker um, because we're she's getting long. All right, Jill Swirzelsticks. Is that your real name, Jill? <laughs> That's fantastic. Swirzelsticks. If it's not your real name, I I wish it was. 
Um, it looks like a real name. The way it's spelled, it looks like Swirzel Sticks. Like you should open up a candy company. Um, I'd buy your candy. My 12-year-old daughter asked me after reading Exodus 32, 28, if God gives us free will to worship him, why did he have Moses command the Levites to kill those 3,000 people who chose not to? Oh, that's interesting. So um, Exodus 32, 28, I'll give you guys a little bit of background here. What happened in this passage? Real quick summary. Um, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses in that day, about 3,000 men of Israel, of the people, fell. Uh, why? Okay, this is, I guess I won't read it all to you, but this this passage, they they leave Egypt, the Exodus, right? There's a new people. They've, they've done the Passover. They've covenanted with God and they're making an agreement. We're going to obey God. We're going to worship God. And what happens next is Moses goes up the mountain. He's gone for a while. At this time, Aaron, who's supposed to be like Moses' right-hand guy, Aaron, his brother, builds a golden calf, right? Because they're fearful. They're without their leader and they're not really trusting in God. There's no faith yet, right? There's There just isn't faith. So, what they do is they build this golden calf. And the weirdest thing happens. Aaron tells the people of this golden idol. He says, this is Yahweh who led you out of Egypt. He calls the idol Yahweh. Like this blows my mind. He made an idol to God, right? This was this was wrong. And they worship the idol and they start, it, it says that they, they were playing. They rose up to play. The implication there is they were doing the sexual behaviors that happened in cult groups at the time. They were doing all kinds of wicked things. So they're worshiping a false idol. They're being perverse. And Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he finds them and he throws the commandments down and breaks them. Big epic scene, right? The consequence of this is that a lot of people who rebelled against God, and even when Moses came down, they didn't rush back over to Moses. They still didn't repent. Then they're killed for their rebellion because God is not going to create a nation of idolaters. He's trying to create a people for himself and they're agreeing to go with him and be his. So why, if God gives us free will, does do they get punished? And I think the answer is this, and this is what I would t tell your, your daughter, um, is that free will doesn't mean you don't get consequences for your choices. They made a free choice to worship this idol and to rebel against God. They made a free will choice, but that doesn't mean you have no consequences. So your daughter, maybe she has a brother. She has the free will to punch him in the nose. She can do that. You're not going to hold her arms behind your back the rest of her life. Like she could do it, but there will be consequences if she does it. And so we have free will to make choices. We make our decisions, but God is going to deal with us. So we have freedom, but freedom isn't right. Freedom isn't, isn't permission even. Um, freedom is just is the ability to do things. And we, we suffer consequences based on what we do. Mary Strickland, question 16, says, even though I know people as a whole who were made by God because God made Adam, how do I know that I or people individually are also made by God, especially when they are conceived out of sin? Oh, this is an interesting question, Mary. So you're like, okay, you know, God made Adam, but, you know, he made Adam like made, made Adam. Me, I'm just sort of like the consequence of biology, right? And, and, and my parents coming together. Okay. So there's a different, a couple of different ways to try to answer this question. One's a very interesting question about uh, where does the human soul come from? Now, some people think the human soul is purely biologically created. Like there's something that happens when, you know, sperm and egg come together and a new human is created in that moment that a, a soul is developed naturally. Okay. But there are a lot of other people who would suggest that at some point later on, a soul is, 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 is created God, like, specifically does a creation moment, creating a soul, either at that moment of conception or at some later time. Um, now, if that's true, if, if it's that kind of view of the creation of the soul happening in the womb, then God has a direct, miraculous hand in the life of every human being. 
That's interesting, isn't it? So then you were made like that. There, there is a sense of your, your creation is happening individually. You're each made by God. Okay, but I don't know the answer to that question. Where I don't know how to answer the question of our souls like that. Um, you can have your opinions about that. I'm not sure what the right answer is. So there's another sense, and that is that God foreknew you. He's known all things, and he created the world this way. Now, the world is so intricate, and there's so many like butterfly effect things going on in the world that if he had made the world slightly different, you would never have existed, right? Because if, if, if the world was a little different, then my mom might not have met my dad. And I never would have come into being, which means that my existence is part of the plan of God's creation. God, he intentionally knew me. Like he said to Jeremiah, before, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So yes, there's a personal intimate thing. Um, so what I'm suggesting is that when it comes to our existence, it's like the pushing of dominoes. The same guy that set up and pushed the first domino can be, can be um, given credit for the intentionality of all the dominoes. Now, within that, he allows us to make free will choices, but he knew all those free will choices. And so at least when it comes to your eternal soul existing, I think that God is deliberate. God, God knows you. You were, you were more part of his plan than you were part of your parents' plan. And that's encouraging. Lungil Zandi says, hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Lungil. How would you counsel someone who feels their passion for the Lord dying, not praying anymore, not reading the Bible? Um, my first counsel is... Uh, consider this a red flag. Pray that God would restore your passion. Pray that the Lord would help you in this. But I would also then start to evaluate my life. If this is me, I've been there. If this is me, I'd start to ask, is there a specific like, sin in my life that is sucking the passion out of my life? Are there specific issues that are like weighing on me that are causing me to go through this? Now, if you know what those are, address those. Let's say you have no idea. I, I don't know. I, I don't know of any sin I'm doing. I don't know of anything that's wrong. Except when you say I'm not praying anymore, not reading the Bible, I'm going to suggest that those are problems in themselves. So do spiritual things. Scripture says in, in James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And what's interesting in James is that it talks about people who are sinning and it says for them to, to, to wring their hands, to like repent, to weep and to mourn. Now, it's weird to tell somebody, weep and mourn. Now, back in the olden days, they would do mourning a little differently than we do. We, we tend to just be like, I'm mourning because I'm crying, so I guess me mourning. But they would be very deliberate about it. Like they put on sackcloth or dark clothing, and they would go around in like outward acts of mourning that weren't necessarily connected to their feelings, but which probably helped promote feelings. I'm going to suggest that you take some outward actions of coming to God, that it might draw your heart to him as well. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, put on some worship music and worship the Lord. Ask God to restore your heart. I'm saying that uh, when our hearts are all funky, we don't have necessarily a, a, a switch to flip to fix our hearts. But what we can do is direct our steps and let our hearts follow afterwards. The heart often, the emotions often, they they trail behind us. There's a lag, okay? There's like where we are and there's where our hearts are. And if you keep walking towards the Lord, your heart will follow eventually. So seek the Lord, draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. Another way to put this in, re read the letter uh, that Jesus gave for the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. To them, he said, like they lost their first love. And so he told them to go back and do the first works. So I'd ask you, Lungil, what was that first stuff you did when you first... When you were at the highest moment of your love for God and your passion for God, what were you doing then? Go back and do those things. Chris Levy says, my question is, how do you bring together an, 
and an errancy and preservation to modern translations, which say verses have been added and taken away. End of Marks, Acts 8.37. Okay, inerrancy and preservation have to do with the word of God. But when you say, um, I I guess, okay, so I'm going to answer this from my perspective, which is that in these passages, there's verses where... How do I summarize all this? This is kind of a big issue. There's verses where we, where, okay, now let me start over. <laughs> False start. Most of the Bible, the vast, vast majority of the Bible, there's no question about it. Okay. You pick up the Bible, open to a page, put your finger on the page. Like that verse is original. We know it's original. There are occasionally places where you go, the ending of Mark, is that original? I'm going to do a whole thing on that when we get to Mark 16. Um, or you, or you have Acts 837 or something. You have these different passages. Is that, does that belong or does that not belong? Now, when in doubt, translators will usually put the verse in the text with a footnote. Or if they feel like more likely it's not original, then they'll put it in the footnote with a little number next to it so that you can go to the footnote to find it. Um, generally speaking, textual criticism says, sometimes we move those footnotes around. We go, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put that verse up here now instead of down here. Now, how do I as a practical Christian deal with all this? I say this, that what I have is the whole Bible for sure. There may be additional verses in my Bible. They're not heretical. In no case are they teaching theology that gives me different theology. And this is important to know because practically speaking, you're like, am I being misled? No, there's no place where these extra verses would be teaching you bad theology. There's none of that going on. So really, I've got the whole Bible inerrant and preserved. The question is, do I also have a little bit of extra stuff in there? And if, when they're not sure, they tend to include it because what would you rather do if I'm not sure about this verse? So of course I'll include it. I'm not going to get rid of it if I'm not sure. And that's the right attitude to take. So there's my short answer on this, Chris. I don't think this infects, uh, affects preservation or inerrancy because it's about extra, not less. So if I have the whole Bible plus some, well, I've preserved inerrant and more. Okay. I don't want more exactly, to be honest. I don't, but that's not an inerrancy issue. Um, number 19, we're almost done. Stephen Richardson Guitar says, how do we know parts of the New Testament are reliable that narrate Jesus when he's alone without witnesses? Example, being tempted in the wilderness, prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Thank you. Um, so I'll give a couple answers. Um, one, Jesus could easily have simply told people what happened when he was alone. He could have easily just told somebody, right? He goes to the wilderness, they come back. Hey, what happened, Jesus? And he could tell them, I was tempted by the devil, right? Like he could just tell them the story. So there's, there's, there's plenty of things people know about you that happened when you were alone. Um, with the garden of Gethsemane, I think people could hear him. He actually, he left, but he drew Peter, James, John, he drew them a little closer to him. He went a little further. I think they could hear him as he was agonizing in prayer. So I don't, I think that he wasn't alone there. Um, yeah, he could told him now, now that would be on a very natural human level. Easy. He tells them what happened. They ask. Or they, or they, somebody did witness it. You thought he was alone, but somebody was close enough to hear it or see it. Another answer is that the New Testament authors are writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself tells them, like, the, the, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything I've told you. And so we, we see the activity of the Holy Spirit in the authors of the Gospels. Um, now, would I jump there immediately? Like, oh, so like Mark's writing and he just goes, I just know what Jesus said there. I just know it. Um, no, my first thought would be to look for a natural explanation for that. Like they asked him what happened in the wilderness, Jesus, and he just told them. That would be my my thought. Um, yeah. Last question from Blue Green. You don't know if you're blue or green? Man, one of those colors could kill you. 
What happens to people who become unclean, impure in Leviticus the whole day? Bad or negative things or they just can't go into the temple? Yeah, this is just like a ritual impurity or uncleanness. They touch something and they're unclean till the end of the day. That means that they would not want to touch someone else to spread that uncleanness and that they're, they're ritually unclean. So they're not going to be able to go perform certain activities in the temple. Uh, that's all that means. So the funny thing about this is that a lot of people like to mock the Old Testament for its purity and cleanliness laws, but many of these laws have incredible pragmatic value. Like there's, for instance, the recipe that God gave for this water of cleansing. They had to use the special water of cleansing. The recipe they gave, it looks like it's a recipe for soap. Like it rendered, it's rendered soap is what it looks like. Um, and I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I think it's probably soap as you look at the recipe and you look at the ingredients and you look at how to make soap on your own. You're like, that looks the same. And I think this is so neat because it would have been like a hand-washing cleanliness thing. You know, if you touch a dead body, you can't touch anything else for a while. I'm like, this is actually really healthy for their culture. Now, not every law was made for sanitation and health, but like the Jews, they, if they went number two, they got to go outside the camp to do it. They can't just go in the camp yet. Like during the civil war, one of the problems was that these guys were digging little holes and just going right next to their own tents. And this creates an unsanitary environment so that wounds get infected more often and more likely. And it's just neat. It's just neat that God in many ways was protecting them through those very laws. Um, and they just threw obedience, just saying, I, I don't understand this, but I'll just do what God says that they were actually being preserved and protected. I think that's a great, a great lesson. Just trust God, do what he says. If you don't understand it, that's okay. You just understand that he said it and you trust him in it. All right, y'all check this out. Monday, Monday I'm teaching 1 p.m. I'll be joining you um, to talk about uh, why didn't Jesus know the day or the hour? We'll get in through that. Next Wednesday, I have an interview I did with a 16-year-old. I think he was 16, but he's a teenager from Belgium who gave his life to Christ because of not only my ministry, but because of other online ministries like uh, What Do You Meme, John McRae's ministry, Cameron Bertuzzi's Capturing Christianity, and David Wood, um, and then uh, William Lane Craig. So all, all of those ministries all helped lead him to Christ. He went from atheist to Christian. Now he's, this is kind of cool, he's written a paper. And in the paper, he defended the resurrection of Christ. He then, uh, his teacher pushed back on it. He then took the questions his teacher had and he did an interview with me on the topic um, we just did this a few days ago and I've edited the video and it's going to go live on Wednesday. You get to see the interview. You go to meet Mario and I think that'll be pretty neat. Um, let's see. Other than that, I will put a link down below and I'll put one here as well to the video I was talking about on did Mary have other kids? The virginity of Mary. Is that like a perpetual virginity thing? And I'll get into great detail there for you. I hope you'll check it out. Otherwise, God bless you. Keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Lift his countenance up upon you and give you peace.